At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 6, Early Cold War Leaders, Atlee Truman. In this episode, we will be briefly examining the lives of the early leaders of the Cold War. We will be examining their lives leading up to the Cold War and how these lives helped to shape the opening stages of the conflict. Our objective in studying these leaders is to better understand why they made the decisions that they made and how these decisions would have long-term implications for the world we live in today. Clement Attlee was a British politician who was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1945 to 1951 and the leader of the Labour Party from 1935 to 1955. Attlee was the first person to hold the office of Deputy Prime Minister in the United Kingdom, serving under Winston Churchill and the wartime coalition government, before going on to lead the Labour Party to a landslide election victory in 1945 and a narrow victory in 1950. He became the first Labor Prime Minister to ever serve a full five-year term and was the first to command a Labor majority in Parliament and remains the longest-serving leader of the Labor Party. Attlee would lead the British Empire through the opening stages of the Cold War and the early dissolution of the British Empire. Attlee was born in Putney, Surrey, now part of London, the seventh of eight children in 1883. His father was Henry Attlee, a solicitor, and his mother was Ellen Brivery Watson, the daughter of Thomas Simon Watson, Secretary of the Art Union of London. He was educated at North Howe School, a boys' preparatory school near Kent. He later attended Hellebury College and University College, Oxford, where he graduated with his second-class honors BA in Modern History in 1904. Atlee then trained as a lawyer and was called to the bar at Inner Temple in 1906. Atlee was a very intelligent man, but spoke very little. He enjoyed doing crossword puzzles. He was very cool in intense and stressful situations and extremely well organized with a great memory. Instead of going into law, Atlee worked as manager of the Hellbury House, a charitable club for working class boys in the East End of London, run by his old school. Until then, his political views had been more conservative. However, after his shock at the poverty and deprivation he saw while working with the slum children, he came to view that private charity would never be sufficient to alleviate poverty and that only direct action and income redistribution by the state would have any serious effect. This sparked a process of political evolution that saw him develop into a full-fledged supporter of socialism. He joined the Fabian Society in 1907 and the Independent Labor Party in 1908. For the next 15 years, apart from his time in the service, he continued to live in the heart of London's slums. In everything except politics, Attlee was profoundly conservative. He liked and respected almost every traditional institution 
with which he was associated. He was also strongly family and orientated and unusual among bourgeois socialists of his era. He felt no revulsion against his class and background. In 1912, he became a lecturer at the London School of Economics and remained there until he applied for an army commission following the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914. During the First World War, Attlee was commissioned and served with the South Lancaster Regiment in the Gallipoli Campaign in Turkey. After a period of fighting in Gallipoli, he became ill with dysentery and was sent to a hospital in Malta to recover. He later served in the Mesopotamian campaign, where he was badly wounded at the Battle of Hanna, being hit in the leg by shrapnel while storming an enemy trench. He was sent back to Britain to recover and spent most of 1917 training soldiers and retired from the army as a major. After the war, he returned to lecturing at the London School of Economics, where he would remain until 1923. In 1919, Attlee returned to local politics in the immediate post-war period, becoming mayor of the borough of Stepney, one of London's poorest inner-city boroughs. During his time as mayor, the council undertook action to tackle slumlords who charged high rents but refused to spend money on keeping their properties in habitable conditions. At the 1922 general election, Attlee became a member of parliament for Limehouse in Stepney. In the House of Commons, his progress was steady but not meteoric. He served as Undersecretary of State for War in the first Labour government, 1924 led by Ramsay MacDonald. In 1927, he was appointed to the Indian Statutory Commission. In 1935, he was elected head of labor and thus head of the opposition. Attlee, during the late 30s, opposed British rearmament and pushed for international peace. Attlee argued that these funds should be spent on social welfare and not weapons of war, which Attlee believed would further destabilize the international system. Moreover, Attlee opposed the Anglo-French alliance. However, with the rising threat from Nazi Germany and the ineffectiveness of the League of Nations, he changed his position. By 1937, Atlee and Labour had jettisoned its pacifist position and came to support rearmament and opposed Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. In 1938, Atlee opposed the Munich Agreement in which Chamberlain negotiated with Hitler to give Germany the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia in an attempt to establish lasting peace in Europe. Attlee was still leader of the opposition when the Second World War broke out in September 1939. The ensuing disaster in Norway would result in a motion of no confidence in Neville Chamberlain. Although Chamberlain survived this, the reputation of his administration was so badly and publicly damaged that it became clear a coalition government would be necessary. Even if Attlee had personally been prepared to serve under Chamberlain in an emergency coalition government, he would never have been able to carry labor with him. Consequently, Ch Chamberlain tendered his resignation and labor and the conservatives entered a coalition government led by Winston Churchill. After the end of the war in Europe in May 1945, new elections were held, which resulted in a landslide. The Labour Party won 393 seats to the, to the Conservatives' 213 and 48% of the public vote, making Attlee Britain's new Prime Minister. After the war, Great Britain faced numerous challenges. Great Britain had come out of the, the Second World War a junior partner of the United States and struggled financially to maintain its position as a leading world power. Technologically and militarily, Great Britain, although not a superpower like the United States or the Soviet Union, still remain one of the world's leading great powers. 
More importantly, the imperial ethos of the British Empire remained intact. By the 1950s, the British Empire had been a constant in international affairs the last 400 years. It was not clear in the late 1940s or the 1950s to the British themselves or others in the world that the British Empire would cease to exist any time in the near future. Great Britain faced problems in their colonies, especially India and Palestine. Financially, the cost of the war had virtually bankrupt the British Empire. By the end of the conflict, Britain's debt exceeded 200% of GDP. Britain had amassed an immense debt of 21 billion pounds, or roughly 40 trillion in 2015 American dollars. Much of this was held in foreign hands, with around 3.4 billion pounds being owed overseas, mainly to creditors in the United States, a sum of which represented around one-third of annual GDP. Even at the end of the war, Britain needed American financial assistance, and in 1945, Britain took a loan for $586 million and $1945, in addition, a further $3.7 billion line of credit. The debt was to be paid off in 50 annual repayments commencing in 1950. Some of these loans were not only paid off in the early 21st century. On the 31st of December, 2006, Britain made a final payment of about $83 million and thereby discharged the last of its war loans to the United States. In 1945, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, had warned Attlee that Britain faced an economic crisis as Britain could not build a welfare state and maintain an empire. Attlee pushed ahead anyways with the creation of the, of the welfare state, which he saw as a moral imperative. Many historians have argued that Attlee didn't really understand economics, though. Attlee's government passed 347 acts of parliament to build the British welfare state. They introduced universal health care, the National Insurance Act, which introduced Social Security, and he nationalized one-fifth of the British economy. Many of Britain's largest industries, such as coal, mining, electricity, and the railways, were brought under state control, despite recurring currency crises and shortages of food and resources so severe that rationing had to be maintained long after the war. By 1947, Struggling to maintain both the British Empire and build the welfare state, Attlee, in one of the worst winters in the 20th century, made a series of dramatic moves to help reposition the British Empire and free up funds for the welfare state. First, Attlee decided to speed up the British departure from India. Second, Attlee decided to give Palestine back to UN control. Palestine had been a League of Nations mandate that Britain received after the First World War. Since 1945, though, the British had been caught in a growing war there between Jewish immigrants and indigenous Palestinians. Ali also gave up on supporting Greece and Turkey against Soviet aggression and asked Truman and the Americans to take the lead. Despite these moves, Attlee wasn't giving up on the British Empire and Britain's position as a world power. In contrast, Attlee questioned the value of these long-term commitments. Palestine and India were clearly regions that were expensive to administer and unwelcoming to British rule. In the Mediterranean, it would be impossible for Britain to bolster both Greece and Turkey against Soviet aggression without American help. Attlee also questioned the value of far-flung British bases with the advent of atomic weapons. Having large naval and air bases throughout the world, costing millions of pounds to maintain, would be wiped out in a flash in any future atomic war. Thus, he saw these bases as a waste of money and resources. Ali also secretly began the British program to build their own atomic bomb once it was clear that the United States wouldn't share the bomb with them. 
keeping the 147 million pounds cost off the books and a secret even to his own Minister of Treasury. Ali also supported his American ally in the Berlin blockade with the RAF helping to ferry food and supplies to Berlin. For a time it seemed as though the British economy had turned around, but with the outbreak of the Korean War, Ali poured funds back into defense and military development and sent forces to fight in Korea. This move severely hurt the British economy and with it Labour's chances in the 1950 election. Labour did poorly in the election with a small five-seat Labour majority. This government couldn't survive, though, and was overthrown in 1951. Attlee tenured his resignation as Prime Minister the following day. His term of six years and three months as Prime Minister was the longest unbroken time spent by any Labour leader as Prime Minister until Tony Blair more than 50 years later, although Harold Wilson did manage to a total of almost eight years as Prime Minister That took place across two different spells between 1964 and 1976. Despite Labour's defeat, three successive conservative governments accepted a broad consensus in favor of a mixed economy, extensive government-funded social services, and the pursuit of full employment. These priorities were not significantly challenged until the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Following the defeat in 1951, Attlee continued to lead the party as leader of the opposition. His last four years as leader were, however, widely seen as one of the Labour Party's weakest periods. He retired as the leader of the Labour Party on the 25th of November, 1955, having had led Labour for 20 years, and was succeeded by Hugh Gaskill. He subsequently retired from the Commons and was elevated to the peerage to take his seat in the House of Lords as Earl Attlee and Viscount Presswood on the 16th of December, 1955. In 1958, He was, along with Bertrand Russell, one of a group of notables to establish the Homosexual Law Reform Society. The society campaigned for the decriminalization of homosexual acts in private by consenting adults, a reform which was voted through Parliament nine years later. A heavy pipe and cigarette smoker from an early age, Attlee had breathing problems in his later years. He died of pneumonia at the age of 84 at Westminster Hospital on the 8th of October, 1967. The leader of the other great democratic power, the United States at the time, was Harry S. Truman. Truman was a Midwesterner from rural middle class and the only president in recent times not to graduate from college. Truman would lead the country through the last days of the Second World War and the opening stages of the Cold War. Truman's presidency transformed the nation in fundamental ways that weren't visible at the time but have become visible with the hindsight of history. Truman was born on May the 8th, 1884, in Lamar, Missouri, the oldest child of John Anderson Truman and Martha Ellen Young Truman. When Truman was six, his parents moved to Independence so he could attend the Presbyterian Church Sunday School. Truman did not attend a traditional school until he was eight. As a boy, Truman was interested in music, reading, and history all encouraged by his mother, with whom he was very close. As president, he solicited her political as well as personal advice. He got up at five every morning to practice the piano, which he studied twice a week until he was 15. Truman worked as a page at the 1900 Democratic National Convention at the Convention Hall in Kansas City. His father had many friends who were active in the Democratic Party and helped young Harry to gain his first political position. After graduating from Independence High School, now William Chrisman High School, in 1901, 
Truman worked as a timekeeper on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, sleeping in hobo camps near the rail lines. He worked at a series of clerical jobs and was employed briefly in the mailroom of the Kansas City Star. He returned to Grandview Farm in 1906, where he lived until entering the Army in 1917. During this period, he courted Bess Wallace and proposed to her in 1911. She turned him down. Truman said that before he proposed again, he wanted to be earning more money than a farmer did. Truman had dreamed of going to the United States Military Academy at West Point, but he was refused an appointment because of his poor eyesight. He enlisted in the Missouri Army National Guard in 1905, serving until 1911 in a Kansas City-based artillery battery. At his induction, his eyesight had been unacceptable, but the second time he took the test, he passed by secretly memorizing the eye chart. When the United States entered World War I, Truman rejoined the Guard, and the men elected him an officer, making him first lieutenant of a battery. At Fort Sill, Truman met Lieutenant James Pendergast, nephew of Thomas Joseph Pendergast, a Kansas City political boss, and this connection had a profound influence on Truman's later life. In mid-1918, about one million soldiers of the American Expeditionary Force were in France. Truman was promoted to captain in July 1918 and became commander of Battery D of the 129th Field Artillery, 60th Brigade, 35th Infantry Division. It was known for its discipline, problems, and Truman was initially unpopular. His soldiers began to flee during a sudden attack by the Germans in the Vagas Mountains, but Truman encouraged his men to stay and fight, using profanity that he had first heard while working on the Santa Fe Railroad. The men were so surprised to hear Truman use such language that they immediately obeyed. Truman's battery fired some of the last shots of the war on November the 11th, 1918. Battery D did not lose a single man while under Truman's command in France, and his men presented him with a large, loving cup upon their return to the United States after the war. The war was a transformative experience for Truman that brought out his leadership qualities. He had entered the service in 1917 as a family farmer who had been unsuccessful in several business ventures, but during the war he had achieved a record and gained leadership experience that greatly enhanced and supported his post-war political career in Missouri. At the war's conclusion, Truman was mustered out as a captain. He returned to Independence, where he married Bess Wallace on June 28, 1919. The couple had one child, Mary Margaret Truman. Shortly before the wedding, Truman and Jacobson opened a haberdashery together at the 104th West 12th Street in downtown Kansas City. After a brief initial success, the store went bankrupt during the recession of 1921. Truman did not pay off the last of the debts from this venture until 1934 when he did so with the aid of his supporter. With the help of the Kansas City Democratic Machine, led by Tom Pendergrast, Truman was elected in 1922 as a county court judge of Jackson County's Eastern District. This was an administrative rather than a judicial position. Truman was not re-elected, unfortunately, in 1924, losing in a Republican wave led by President Calvin Coolidge. Two years selling automobile club memberships and the political wilderness convinced him that a public service career was safer for a man approaching middle age who had never been successful in the private sector. In 1926, Truman was elected as the presiding judge for the county court. In 1933, Truman was named Missouri's 
director of the Federal Employment Program, part of the Civil Works Administration, at the request of Postmaster General James Farley. This was payback to Pendergrass for delivering the Kansas City vote to to, uh, FDR in the 1932 presidential election. The appointment confirmed Pendergrass' control over federal patronage jobs in Missouri and marked the zenith of his power. It also created a relationship between Truman and Roosevelt's aide, Harry Hopkins, and assured Truman's avid support for the New Deal. After serving as county judge, Truman wanted to run for governor or Congress, but Pendergrass rejected these ideas. Truman reluctantly accepted that he would serve out his career at the county level. However, events turned in in Truman's favor. Pendergrass struggled to find a candidate to back in the 1934 Senate race, so Pendergrass reluctantly backed Truman as a Democratic candidate for the 1934 U.S. Senate election for Missouri after four other men were turned down. During the Democratic primary, Truman defeated Congressman John J. Corcoran and Jacob L. Milligan with the solid support of Jackson County, which was crucial to his candidacy as were the contacts that he had made statewide as a county official. Truman defeated incumbent Republican Roscoe Patterson by nearly 20 percentage points. Truman assumed office with a reputation as the senator from Pendergrast. He turned over patronage decisions to Pendergrast, though Truman always maintained that he voted his conscience. He later defended the patronage decisions by saying that, quote, by offering a little to the machine, He saved a lot, close quote. In his term as a U.S. senator from Missouri, Truman spoke out against the corporate greed and dangers of Wall Street speculators and other moneyed interests attaining too much influence in national affairs, but was largely ignored by President Roosevelt. He even had troubles getting his phone calls returned from the White House. In late 1940, Truman traveled to various military bases. The waste and profiteering which he saw led him to use his subcommittee chairmanship in the Committee on Military Affairs to begin investigations into abuses while the nation prepared for war. A separate committee was set up under Truman to conduct a formal investigation. The Roosevelt administration supported his plan rather than whether a more hostile probe by the House representatives. Chairmanship of what became to be known as the Truman Committee made him a national figure, thus erasing his reputation as being in league with corrupt politicians or being corrupt himself. In 1944, Truman was selected to replace Henry Wallace as vice president in the 1944 election. Vice President Henry Wallace was popular among Democratic voters, but was viewed as too far to the left and too friendly to labor for some of Roosevelt's advisors. The president and several of his confidants wanted to replace Wallace, knowing that Roosevelt might not live out a fourth term. The Roosevelt-Truman ticket achieved a 432-99 to electoral vote victory in the election, defeating the Republican ticket of Governor Thomas E. Dewey of New York. Truman's brief vice presidency was relatively uneventful. Roosevelt rarely contacted him, even to inform him of major decisions. The president and vice president met alone together only twice during their time in office. Truman rarely discussed world affairs or domestic politics with Roosevelt. He was uninformed about major initiatives relating to the war and and the top-secret Manhattan Project, which was about to test the world's first atomic bomb. Truman had been vice president for 82 days when President Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945. Upon assuming the presidency, 
Truman asked all the members of FDR's cabinet to remain in place and told them that he was open to their advice. In the wake of the Allied victory, Truman journeyed to Europe for the Potsdam Conference. He was there when he learned that the Trinity test of the first atomic bomb on July the 16th had been successful. He hinted to Joseph Stalin that the U.S. was about to use a new kind of weapon against the Japanese, though this was the first time the Soviets had been officially given information about the atomic bomb, Stalin was already aware of the bomb project, having learned about it through his espionage channels long before Truman did. In August, the Japanese government refused to surrender demands as specifically outlined in the Potsdam Declaration, and the invasion of mainland Japan was imminent. Truman approved the scheduled drop of two available bombs. Truman always said that attacking Japan with atomic bombs saved many lives on both sides. Military estimates for the invasion of mainland Japan were that it would take a year and a result in 250,000 to 500,000 American casualties. Supporters of Truman's decision argue that given the tenacious Japanese defense of the outlying islands, the bombing saved hundreds of thousands of lives that would have been lost invading mainland Japan. Critics have argued that the use of nuclear weapons was inherently immoral. The end of World War II was followed by an uneasy transition from a wartime to a peacetime economy. The costs of the war efforts were enormous, and Truman was intent on decreasing government expenditures on the military as quickly as possible. Demobilizing the military and reducing the size of the various services was a cost-saving priority. A great deal of work had to be done to plan how best to transition the peacetime production of goods while avoiding mass unemployment for returning veterans. Truman also faced a body in Congress where a combination of Republican and conservative Southern Democrats formed a powerful voting bloc. The president was faced with the reawakening of labor management conflicts that had lain dormant during the war years. Severe shortages in housing and consumer products and widespread dissatisfaction with inflation, which at one point hit 6% in a single month, added to this polarized environment was a wave of destabilizing strikes in major industries. A serious steel strike in January 1946 involving 800,000 workers, the largest in the nation's history, was followed by a coal strike in April and a rail strike in May. November 1945 to June 1946 saw the greatest period of strikes in American history. Three million workers from across American industries went out on strike. In industries such as oil, steel, electric, coal, bus drivers, janitors, and even coffin makers. Most of these strikes were in relation to working conditions. During the war, labor relations had been held in check by a cooperation between unions, the government, and business. But with the war over, they lost their common goal. Moreover, many of the workers were afraid of losing their jobs and angry over declining wages with the growing unemployment and competition for work from returning GIs. The public was angry, with a majority in polls favoring a ban on strikes by public service workers and a year's moratorium on labor actions. Truman proposed legislation to draft striking workers into the armed forces and a dramatic personal appearance before Congress was able to announce settlement of the rail strike. His proposal passed the House of Representatives but failed in the Senate. Truman cooperated closely with the Republican leaders on foreign policy, though he fought them bitterly on domestic issues. Truman twice vetoed bills to lower income tax rates in 1947. Although the initial vetoes were sustained, Congress overrode his veto of a tax cut bill in 1948. 
The power of the labor unions was significantly curtailed by the Taft-Hartley Act, which was enacted over Truman's veto. The Hartley Act restricts the activities and power of labor unions from interfering with how companies operate. It prevented sympathy strikes when one group of workers strike on behalf of another, secondary boycotts, banned foremen and managers from joining unions. It permitted right-to-work laws in some states, allowing states to hire non-union members and forced union leaders to sign affidavits disavowing communism. Internationally, Truman strongly supported the creation of the United Nations. With the Soviet Union expanding its sphere of influence through Eastern Europe, Truman and his foreign policy advisors took a hard line against the USSR in Berlin during the Berlin blockade and later in Korea, which we will be looking at extensively in later episodes. In the spring of 1948, Truman's public approvals rating stood at 36%, and the president was nearly universally regarded as incapable of winning the general election. In a personal appeal to the nation, Truman crisscrossed the country by train. His whistle-stop speeches from the rear platform of the observation car, Ferdinand Magellan, came to represent his campaign. His combative appearance, such as those at the town square of Harrisburg, Illinois, captured the popular imagination and drew huge crowds. Six stops in Michigan drew a combined half million people. In the end, Truman held his progressive Midwestern base, won most of the southern states despite the civil rights plank, and squeaked through with narrow victories in a few critical states, notably Ohio, California, and Illinois. The defining image of the campaign came after Election Day when an ecstatic Truman held aloft an enormous front page of the Chicago Tribune with huge headlines that proclaim, Dewey defeats Truman. In 1951, the U.S. ratified the 22nd Amendment, made, making it impossible for Truman to run for president again. Upon leaving the presidency, Truman returned to Independence, Missouri, where he wrote his memoirs and established his presidential library. On December the 5th, 1972, Truman was admitted to Kansas City Research Hospital and Medical Center with lung congestion for pneumonia. He developed multiple organ failures and died at 7.50 a.m. on December the 26th at the age of 88. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 6, Early Cold War Leaders, Atlee and Truman. Join us for Episode 7, Capitalism, Looking at the Economic and Social System of the United States. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find our latest news and Cold War content. Or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. 
Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.